Good afternoon, I'm Dennis Vittorian, and this is the 25th Hour, helping you remember everything that happened beyond the 24-7 news cycle. Now, in this week's episode, for the week of January 16th to 22, 2022, Eric Adams faces public safety emergencies after an Asian commuter was pushed in front of a train and a police officer was killed. Kathy Hochul unveils her state budget and campaign war chest. Biden gives his first news conference in 10 months as his voting rights agenda fails. And the Supreme Court gave Trump no cover after denying to shield his records from the January 6th Select Committee. Now, onto the show. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Starting with the Adams administration. The Omicron surge continues to decline on a downward spiral, with Mayor Eric Adams saying COVID numbers are leveling off. The MTA has reported that out of its 67,000 staff members, almost 18,000 have had a positive case of COVID since December 2nd of last year. Fire Commissioner Daniel Nigro has announced his retirement after 50 years of service. Adams took his first trip to D.C. as mayor this week, where he urged his fellow urban mayors to not shirk from the challenges facing their cities. Commuter Michelle Goh was pushed onto the train tracks this week by Marshall Simon, a mentally challenged individual who begged for a judge to commit him to a mental hospital. Hundreds gathered in Times Square for a vigil in Goh's honor. A rise in subway deaths by pushing people onto the tracks and fear of mentally ill individuals causing trouble in the trains has spurred even Mayor Adams to say he doesn't feel safe riding the city subways. Governor Hochul responded by deploying mental health workers into the city subway system to address the homelessness crisis rampant within it. MTA leaders are exploring placing shields and doors on train platforms. Police officer Jason Rivera was killed this week, and a second police officer is in critical condition after responding to a domestic violence call this week where they were met with gunfire, which killed police officer Jason Rivera. Adams held a roundtable meeting concerning gun violence. The shooting saw the fourth cop shot across the city in 72 hours, and Mayor Eric Adams gave a press conference afterwards saying shooters are at war with New York City. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg consulted with a crisis communication specialist after the release and criticism of his priorities memo. Bragg admitted that he could have handled the release of the memo better but stood by it. Listeners may remember that Alvin Bragg's memo deprioritized the arrests of fair beaters, prostitution, and those resisting arrest in certain circumstances. Hate crime complaints have increased in the city last year, with anti-Asian hate crimes being reported three times more than the year before. State Comptroller Brad Lander has started to release his first official audit results, starting with the NYPD's promise to hire 415 civilian employees, but a lack of data makes the results of that goal a mystery. Mayor Adams promised to redesign a thousand intersections in New York City for the purpose of giving pedestrians safer crossings. The mayor said he wants to change regulations to force drivers to fully stop whenever a pedestrian crosses the street, whether or not there's a crosswalk, and increase police enforcement of the measure. The chairman of the Municipal Labor Committee, Harry Nepoli, may have some explaining to do after he talked trash about a group of city retirees fighting to change their public health insurance. A de Blasio City Union deal scheduled a change in retirees' health insurance to Medicare Advantage Plus, which some retirees claim puts their benefits into the hands of private insurers and changes coverage, and those who refuse to make the switch have to pay a nearly $200 a month penalty. The New York City Organization of Public Service Retirees sued against the plan, and Adams has not indicated how he plans to proceed. As he promised, Adams has converted his first three paychecks as mayor into Bitcoin and another cryptocurrency, Ethereum. Over at the city council, council members were given their committee chair assignments this week. Diana Ayala was given the role of deputy speaker and chair of the General Welfare Committee. Keith Powers was named majority leader and chair of the Rules Committee. And Salvina Brooks Powers was named majority whip and chair of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Rafael Salamanca Jr. kept his chairmanship of the Land Use Committee. Justin Brannon was given chair of the Finance Committee. And Rita Joseph replaced former councilman Mark Traeger as chair of the Education Committee. Former Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer was given the Oversight Committee. A full list can be found on the council's website. The City Board of Elections formally asked the state to review whether the council's recently passed non-citizen voting law is legal. The law would allow legal residents to vote in city elections, excluding state and federal races.
A week after submitting her first vote as a council member from inside the Republican Minority Leader's Office, Republican Queens Councilwoman Vicky Palladino received the COVID exemption after testing negative for the virus and was allowed to place her first vote inside the council chamber this week. Over at the Hochul administration, the state's COVID positivity rate has fallen down to less than 10% for the first time in more than a month. Governor Hochul delivered a speech outlining her budget proposals, pitching a $216.3 billion package. Some highlights include projecting a balanced budget through 2027, investment in infrastructure, affordable housing in public universities, improvements to nursing homes, healthcare facilities, and personnel, relief for small businesses and workers, funding for child care, tuition assistance, and climate change programs. Over in the uh, governor's race, Representative Tom Swozy has $5 million in his campaign coffers. And, well, what about Governor Hochul? Well, she has over $20 million, outshining her competitors. Former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio officially bowed out of the governor's race this week, uh, collectively hearing a sigh of relief from New York City. Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin paid out $25,000 this week that was owed to car loan payments and other personal expenses that were charged to his state Senate campaign account, a source of questions from his time even before he was picked by Hochul to be her second-in-command. Despite his ouster, a SUNY Chancellor Jim Malachis will be allowed to take what's called a study leave while earning his $450,000 salary and then will take up a tenured position as a professor within the SUNY system. Malachis was pressured out by the SUNY board following his role in Cuomo's scandals. Hochul signed an absentee voting law this week that would last through 2022 setting the COVID pandemic, allowing those to vote from home. The State Liquor Authority took a unanimous vote this week to allow movie theaters to serve beer and liquor to patrons, so get ready to buy those overpriced beers with your overpriced popcorn. State Attorney General Letitia James released her office's transcripts of Cuomo's investigation, including the former governor himself. Part of the disclosure was the discovery that Cuomo's former state inspector general, Letizia Tagliaferro, was the one who greenlighted the move to place a relatively novice female state trooper onto Cuomo's protective detail, who Cuomo would allegedly sexually harass later on. James also laid out new details regarding her investigation into the Trump Organization for Fraud in new court filings this week, saying Trump and his children put their signatures on a myriad of documents, lowballing assets to escape taxes while inflating the value of those same corporate assets to gain access to loans. A week since online sports betting was legalized in New York, the State Gaming Commission reported that New Yorkers have already placed $603 million in bets. Syracuse is launching an $800 million infrastructure project where the city is trying to replace housing projects with mixed-income neighborhoods. Nassau County's police department will now release the names of those who have been re-arrested after being let out on bail, a push by the Republican members of the county to continue shedding light on what they call is an inadequate bail reform system. Over at the state legislature, the state legislature confirmed Jano Lieber as the permanent head of the MTA this week, transitioning him from his acting role. One of Lieber's first statements in his new role was to say that the MTA does not want any fair hikes for all of this year. Over in the state courts, a Cornell law professor filed a federal lawsuit to challenge state health department guidance that would prioritize underserved demographics over white New Yorkers regarding COVID treatment. And Poughkeepsie City Court Judge Frank Mora continued to return to his courtroom maskless despite having been barred from his own courtroom for violating that same mask mandate. Mora has moved on to conducting criminal arraignments over Zoom. Over in the Biden administration, Fauci said that it's too soon to say Omicron will be the last surge as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases is warning that there may be other variants. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, has tested positive for COVID this week. He's saying that he is working from home. CDC data released this week shows that Pfizer and Moderna's booster shots against the Omicron variant are 90% effective against hospitalizations, and other studies released by state and federal officials found that vaccination and prior COVID infection reduces a person's chances of reinfection and hospitalization in a six-month window. 
The website that allows people to order up to four rapid tests for their households went live a day earlier this week with the Postal Service now scheduled to deliver 500 million test kits within weeks. After the Treasury Department threatened to take back COVID relief money from the state of Arizona if their governor, Doug Ducey, continues to withhold that same money for schools not adopting an anti-mask policy, Arizona turned around and sued the U.S. to proactively stop the clawback of relief funds. Biden had his first in-person news conference with journalists in 10 months, defending his record and going after Republicans for opposing his legislative agenda. The president did, however, concede that his pandemic response was less than stellar and said that his agenda would have to be broken up in separate parts instead of a huge legislative package. Biden ordered all federal agencies to raise the minimum wage of their workers to 15 an hour, taking effect starting at the end of the month, affecting 70,000 workers as over 2 million workers have already received that wage or are earning more. Tech company Intel announced that it's going to invest at least $20 billion to build a chip-making factory in Ohio. A worldwide semiconductor chip shortage has contributed to the overall decline in the global supply chain. CNBC reported that Energy Secretary Jennifer Granham violated a stock disclosure law nine times when she failed to disclose her stock sales within 45 days as required. Jobless claims rose to 286,000 last week as the Omicron surge started to peak. And talks with Russia have stalled as the country positions more troops along its border with Ukraine. An invasion is feared to be imminent within a month or so. Biden got into some hot water with the Ukrainian president for measuring the degree of an invasion necessary for an American response. The British government on Saturday said that the Kremlin is planning to install pro-Russian leaders in Ukraine and overthrow the current president there. The U.S. is thinking about pulling out the families of its diplomats in Ukraine as a precautionary measure while observers have noticed the families of Russian diplomats have already started to go. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and his Russian counterpart Sergei Lavrov held what they called frank and substantive talks in Geneva and promised to continue their dialogue to head off any confrontation between Russia and Ukraine. The Treasury Department also sanctioned four Ukrainians for their roles in spreading Russian propaganda, setting the stage for a Russian invasion. Two members of the Ukrainian parliament, Taras Kazak and Oleg Voloshin, were sanctioned, along with two former government officials. Biden held bilateral talks with Japan's Prime Minister Fumi Kishida this week, discussing economic and environmental issues as well as the geopolitical issues regarding China. Kishida reportedly invited Biden to visit Japan, with Biden accepting. U.S. authorities charged four Belarusian officials for their role in committing what's called air piracy when they forced a Ryanair jet plane to land in Minsk so that a dissident can be arrested last year. Listeners may recall that Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko was facing mass protests following a rigged election and feigned a bomb threat on the plane to force its grounding. The Treasury Department extended a ban on bond transactions held by the oil refinery company Citgo, which operates in Venezuela. The U.S. continues to support opposition leader Juan Guaido's self-declaration as president against the current one, Nicolas Maduro. The kicker is that Guaido controls Citgo and celebrated the move by the Treasury. The CIA released a report disclaiming Russia or China's involvement in creating the so-called Havana Syndrome, a recently discovered ailment affecting U.S. diplomats around the globe with bouts of nausea, dizziness, and other neurological symptoms. Instead, the sickness seems to be coming from environmental causes or stress, disappointing those seeking answers. Over in Congress and starting in the House, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection has subpoenaed Ivanka Trump, the first person in Trump's family to have been called forth by the committee. The panel is interested in Ivanka's conversations with Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and Trump himself on the day of the insurrection. Trump commented on the news, saying it would be unfair to seek Ivanka's testimony. The committee also subpoenaed the phone records of Eric Trump and Donald Jr.'s girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle. Documents approved to be released by the National Archives from Trump's time in the White House have already shown that Trump had a draft executive order ready to declare a national emergency after the 2020 presidential election and seize voting machines. The committee is also reportedly looking into a group of fake Republican state electors who tried to certify Trump as the winner of their state's presidential elections by nefarious means despite actually losing to Biden. Former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani was allegedly instrumental in overseeing the plot. He was subpoenaed by the select committee along with Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, and Trump campaign advisor Boris Epstein for their role in spreading false propaganda about voter fraud and launching spurious lawsuits around the country.
Fulton County, Georgia DA Fannie Willis asked for the convening of a grand jury to help investigate whether Trump's attempts to interfere in the presidential election in the state constituted any crimes. Listeners may recall Trump's phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to help find him votes to overtake Biden's lead in 2020. A proposed bipartisan law aimed at banning lawmakers from trading stocks during their time in office has gained steam, and Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who earlier defended lawmakers' rights to take part in the stock market, continues to say she trusts her members not to do anything improper. However, she said that if the measure continues to gain steam, she'll review the bill. The FBI conducted a raid at the office and home of Democratic Texas Representative Henry Cuellar, seizing his computer. Cuellar said through a statement that he is fully cooperating with any investigation. Democrats Jim Langevin of Rhode Island and Jerry McNerney of California both said they're not going to run for re-election next year, bringing the number of Democratic retirements in the House to 28. Over in the Senate, Republicans filibustered two voting rights bills that Democrats knew were doomed as two Democrats' mansion and cinema torpedoed an effort to carve out the filibuster for civil rights legislation. The John Lewis and Freedom to Vote Act sought to restore parts of the original 1964 Voting Rights Act provisions that would give the federal government oversight over states that historically suppressed minority votes and also would overturn recent Republican legislative moves to subvert the vote with increased enforcement against virtually non-existent voter fraud propagated by Trump after losing his re-election. And Arizona, Arizona Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema was censured by the Arizona Democratic Party for her stance to refuse budging on the filibuster. Uh, House Representative Jamal Bowman was arrested when he took part in protests supporting voting rights. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell had to do his own bit of cleanup when he said, quote, African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans on Wednesday when he was speaking as to why the Democrats' voting rights bill should be voted down in the Senate. McConnell pointed to his own time being in the audience during Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech and organizing civil rights marches during his time in college. Congressional Democrats are now trying to figure out a way forward in salvaging Biden's agenda with most opting to break apart the Build Back Better plan into separate pieces and passing them that way. Compounding the problem is Biden's sagging approval rating, hitting a new low of 43%. According to a recent AP poll, the president's average approval is down to 41.9%. An antitrust bill was actually moved out of the Senate Judiciary Committee in a bipartisan fashion this week. The bill would place limits on tech platforms such as Apple, Amazon, and Google from favoring their own products over other businesses when consumers use their search engines. Over in the federal judiciary, as alluded to earlier, the Supreme Court ruled against former President Trump's bid to shield his White House documents from the January 6th commission based on a novel argument of executive privilege for former presidents. All justices except for Clarence Thomas refused to let Trump hide his documents, allowing the National Archives to release them. The court also decided to take up a case revolving around whether the state of Oklahoma can prosecute crimes committed by non-Native Americans in tribal territory, but expressly rejected Oklahoma's request to overrule the Mark McGirt case, which ruled that half of the state was Indian territory, giving the federal government jurisdiction to prosecute. In a separate case revolving around the city of Boston's decision to reject a camp's request to fly a Christian flag on a pole owned by the city, the conservative majority seemed to side against Boston, citing the government's willingness to fly gay pride flags, but not Christian ones. A Fifth Circuit panel sent the Texas abortion law to the Texas Supreme Court. In the meantime, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a ruling blocking continued litigation against the law while it winds through the state courts. A Texas federal judge placed an injunction against the federal government's vaccine mandate on its own workers and contractors that work with the federal government, although 95% of the federal workforce has reported being vaccinated so far. Puerto Rico has gotten approval from a federal judge to exit bankruptcy after restructuring its $33 billion in public debt, the largest restructure in U.S. history. And finally, in national news, apart from the March for Life that we go into in a bit, thousands of protesters are expected to show up in D.C. later today to protest vaccine mandates. The rally is called Defeat the Mandates D.C. and raised at least $200,000 with anti-vaccine advocate Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s Children Health Defense Fund helping organize the event. Citing Census Bureau data, CBS News reported this week that 9 million Americans stayed home from work because of COVID in early January, making 6% of the U.S. workforce at home. 
A multi-hour standoff at a Texas synagogue ended in the death of a hostage taker when a person posing as someone in need of shelter took a rabbi and members of his congregation hostage. 44-year-old British national Malik Faisal Akram demanded the release of convicted extremist Afia Siddiqui, although he has no relation to her. Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker took the chance to throw a chair at Akram and escape with his congregation after which Akram was shot dead by SWAT. As they do every year, pro-life protesters showed up in D.C. in what's called a March for Life, hoping the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, which gave women the constitutional right to an abortion. Trump gave a virtual speech to the group a couple of years prior, and the protesters are hopeful now more than ever in a long time that the conservative majority is going to curtail Roe in March. Former associate of Rudy Giuliani's, who tried helping him find dirt on Biden in Ukraine, Igor Fruman, was sentenced to a year in jail this week for an unrelated campaign finance crime. In the meantime, prosecutors investigating Giuliani for fraud have received thousands of texts from his seized phones. The FBI reported that a notebook found by the body of suspected murderer Brian Laundrie claimed responsibility for the death of his former girlfriend Gabby Petito. The couple captured the attention of the nation for its true crime elements after the disappearance of Petito as the couple went on a cross-country road trip. Laundrie came back to his Florida home alone and then disappeared, sparking a nationwide manhunt after Petito's body was discovered. Laundrie's own body was found in a Florida park. The comedian Louis Anderson passed away this week at the age of 68 from cancer complications. Anderson was known for his show Baskets, his myriad acting roles, as well as his time hosting Family Feud. Legendary musician and actor Meatloaf also passed away this week, known also by his real name Michael Lee Ade. He is known for his single I'd Do Anything for Love from his album Bad Out of Hell 2 and his enormous cult following. Meatloaf is suspected to have died from COVID, but an official cause of death is pending. He was 74. And finally, the University of Michigan agreed to a $490 million resolution to settle 1,050 sexual abuse lawsuits by former athletes alleging former football team doctor Dr. Robert Anderson took advantage of them. Anderson died in 2008. And that's it for this week's show of the 25th Hour, helping you stay on top of the 24-7 news cycle. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, share us with your friends, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can email your tips and suggestions at the 25th Hour News at gmail.com and become a patron today for as low as $2 a month to support the show at patreon.com slash the 25th Hour News. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.